I was reading an online article this past week, and it was titled, Nine Things It Says About Your Personality If You Avoid Confrontation. I came to realize it wasn't saying that all nine of these things describe your personality if you avoid confrontation. It was sort of a menu of possibilities that could describe you if you avoid confrontation. And so the author talked to some experts. If you choose flight over fight, it could be because, and here were some of the list of nine, it could be because you're analytical or you're passive or you're aware of where confrontation can lead or you're open-minded or you're hardworking and on and on. And my immediate reaction to this article was, how do I get paid? to write stuff like this, because this was just so general and so vague and so many categories that you could easily go, oh yeah, that's me right there. That's my reason for avoiding confrontation. Um, I, I did stick on one, though, that I, I thought, yep, I, that's probably me when it comes to confrontation. You avoid confrontation because, as the article said, you value the status quo, and the article said people like this don't like excitement and they prefer routine. That is really just a nice way of saying, I don't want to mess with this. I don't want to stir things up right now. It's really, it's really good the way it is. I don't want you to get upset at me. And so I'm just going to enjoy the peace and quiet, which is where many of us are when it comes to dealing with conflict and confrontation. As we've been moving through this latter part of the book of Galatians, we've read a fair amount about conflict. Conflict that is surfacing even within the church, but primarily in Galatians 5, it is this intense conflict between the desires of the flesh, that which goes on in our hearts, the things that we crave for ourselves, versus the desires of the Spirit of God. And that's what the, 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 the contrast that Paul has been talking about here in this balance of Galatians 5, summarized nicely in verse 17 when he says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. All of us are somewhere in that conflict, in that war between the desires of doing what we want to do and doing what God's spirit would will for us to do. The difference, though, is that believers in Jesus Christ are the only ones who actually see the true nature of the conflict. We, we see it now from the perspective of these are sinful desires in my heart. These are desires from God's Spirit for me. We actually can see that contrast. The world, the world those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ Certain laws, certain values, norms, cultural standards, all of that will influence them, will pressure them. They will conform in, in various ways to, to some of those external pressures. But those who have been saved by God, those who have been saved by grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, understand that there are, there's a new heart. We've been given new desires, and so we now look at those fleshly desires differently. We now weigh our hearts and our motives, and we understand that the, the Spirit of God seeks to apply the Word of God to bring God's desires to us. We, we are thrust into the middle of this conflict. The, the, the person who is walking with Jesus Christ has a, a keen or should have a keen awareness of the depth of his or her own sinfulness. We, we begin to get a look into our own hearts, and we understand how easily we are deceived by sin and by temptation. One of the clearest ways we see this conflict between flesh and spirit played out 
is in our daily lives in the interpersonal conflict that we experience. We, we see it in the disruption of community, that, that we have conflict with other people. We have differences with them. And so my, my flesh has certain cravings. It, it wants ease. It wants comfort. It wants that which satisfies me, that which brings me pleasure. And, and conflict comes about because that, that craving tends to drive a wedge between you and I. It is what Stuart talked about last week, the idea that, that sin isolates, and, and it does so because I, I don't want to hear from you. I, I just want to enjoy my sin at that moment or whatever that craving is, and I, I don't necessarily want your feedback. And so I, I tend to be isolated. Or I, I see you as an obstacle to me getting what I want. I have some idol, something that I desperately want, and you seem to be standing in the way, and so the result of that is conflict. James says it in James chapter 4. Why are there quarrels amongst you? Why are there conflicts amongst you? Isn't it because of the desires in your heart? It's because of the things that, that boil up, and instead of responding to them with truth and, and being content in God's promises and what he has supplied, I allow those desires to begin to control my emotions and my reactions, and, and that then turns into conflict, and you are now the person that I am doing battle with. So we are at the end of Galatians 5. If you're not there already, you can turn to Galatians 5, and we're going to read a section starting in verse 24. But this, this passage, last couple of verses of Galatians 5, first five verses of Galatians 6, I think sort of wraps up this larger section of this war between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And, and I think what Paul has done here is he gives us some tools to engage in this war and to win in this war in the form of instruction, illustration, and incentive. You'll see them as we, we walk through them. So let me read, starting in verse 24, where Stuart left off last week, says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. We'll stop there. I meant to mention in the first service, we'll finish Galatians next week, just so that you have some radar on what's ahead the following week. Um, Ryan, uh, one, Brian Yoho, one of our elders, is going to speak on just the home groups and, and the one another's, how we carry those out in the life of our church. And then we're going to take... What we've talked about in Galatians, a lot about the law, and we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. We're going to work through that over the course of the fall as work through just the sort of the practical application of this living in light of the law and understanding how it functions. As believers in Jesus Christ, though, we are engaged in this constant battle, okay? Desires of flesh versus desires of spirit, and the desires of our flesh lead to conflict in our relationships, lead to, to this... Um, frustration with others. How are we to respond? I think the first answer is the instruction. And again, verse 24 and 25 give two sides to the same coin. There is the continuous putting off of fleshly desires. There is the, the need to continuously respond to fleshly desires for what they are. 
and to be on the offensive against those while we are keeping in step with God's Spirit. These two go hand in hand. Both rely on the power of God's Spirit, and yet it's clear in verses 24 and 25 that the actor, the person who who's speaking about in 24 and 25, is you and I as believers. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There is something here that engages you and I as believers. This, this isn't rocket science, and in fact, it, it will sound too simplistic, and you will think, well, it's got to be more to it than that. But ultimately, putting fleshly desires to death and keeping in step with the Spirit comes back to actively meditating on the truth that I belong to Christ Jesus. It, it, it ultimately comes back to understanding that Jesus Christ lives in me. I am joined with Christ. I am in Christ. I am united with Christ. And I, I have got to think about that because it is because I belong to Christ that I have now been set free from the, the dominating power of sin. It, that's what now has given me the freedom to be able to keep in step with the Spirit. Because of what Christ has done, the power of sin over me has been broken. David De Silva puts it like this. The infusion of the Spirit into the life of believers brings Christ's life into theirs, which mystically affects their dying to the power of the flesh and their living to God. I, I just take slight nuance with that word mystically just because we can, we can somehow read too much into that. What he's saying is that when you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into you, which means the life of Christ is now in you and you are now empowered supernaturally by Christ to resist fleshly desires, to see them for what they are, to see God's truth and understand the, the desires of the Spirit, and to be able to deny the flesh because of the power of Christ in us. The Spirit of God brings the life of Christ into the soul of believers, and I am joined to him. That's a union that goes all the way back to the cross, obviously, where we are joined with Christ in his death for our sins on the cross. Our fleshly desires were not made extinct at that point, but they were stripped of their dominating power. They, they no longer rule over us. And so when Satan and the world tempt your fleshly desires with lust or impurity or idolatry or jealousy or rage, whatever it might be, when these temptations appear, we are, as believers in Jesus Christ, empowered by God, Say, no, I, I don't have to give in to that. I understand what God's Spirit desires of me in this instance, and I, I don't need to do that. And, and Paul uses strong language. When he uses that language in verse 24 of crucifixion, the crucifixion of the flesh with its passions and desires, that, that word crucifixion, we know what it, what it envisions in our minds. It is a horrible, agonizing, painful, decisive, merciless death. The executor shows, shows no grace, no kindness. The end is, is sure. The pain is intense. And so when he's using that language, it, it ought to help us 
to come to grips with the fact that we, we ought not toy with temptation as we so often do, as we, we sort of play with how we respond or we take lightly how we respond, when in fact these, these fleshly desires, he's encouraging us toward rejecting them forcefully, decisively, without mercy, understanding that they only seek to destroy. Sin seeks to destroy and to kill and to ruin everything around it, and we need to see it for what it is and respond in kind. John Stott, in, in describing how we often entertain these desires instead of rejecting them and repenting of them, writes, it is as if, having nailed our old nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of the execution. We, we begin to caress it, to long for its release, even to try to take it down again from the cross. We need to learn to leave it there. We have declared war on it. We are not going to resume negotiations. We have crucified the flesh. We are never going to pull on the nails. It's a, it, it's a picture we need to capture when, when, we, when we are light on ourselves and we toy with sin. When we consider temptation and we consider our, our fleshly desires and what we really want and what would really feel good and what we think would be most satisfying in the moment, and, and we, we blank out the, the, the Spirit of God and the desires of the Spirit in that moment because it's all about me and, and how I feel in that moment. I think what Stott's trying to, to say is, is, is just to remind that we, we ought not play with that. We ought not wistfully look back on that, on, on, on some sort of pleasure, when indeed we have the, the Spirit of God, the presence of Christ in us. And so that's why he then urges the, the corresponding to that, the other side of the coin, is if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Here's sort of the put on, if you will. The Greek verb that he uses here for keep in step with was a military term, meant to line up in columns and march according to orders. And so when he says keep in step with the Spirit, he's saying you have a, you have a gracious ruler. You have a, a leader, the one we were singing about, high king of heaven, who has given you his spirit and he longs to lead you and he, 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 he wants to give you direction through his word. He wants to speak to you so that you would follow in line with him, that you would keep in step with him. That is the surest way of walking in the paths of righteousness and denying the fleshly desires. Packer, J.I. Packer, in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, says we are called to what he called disciplined persistence in the objective means of grace that God has provided, his word, prayer, fellowship, worship. You say, oh, Sounds really simple. It is in the sense that we're, if we're looking for something magic and some secret formula, it's, it's, it's not. He, he's saying that ultimately what we are called to in keeping in step with the Spirit is take the things God has given us, his word where he speaks to us, prayer where we cry out and worship him and, and seek his help and his Spirit's help, fellowship, that community that we have together, and worship as we lift up our praise to God and, and live in those things, be persistently diligent, like you are lined up in rows saying, my gracious leader has great things for me. This is where I need to walk. This is where I need to be in his word, and I need to be in prayer, and I need to be in community, and I need to worship. That's what he's calling us to, both individually and corporately. Keeping in step with God's spirit is not some sort of mystical phrase where we're, we're looking for Rainbows in the sky or arrows that you know, light up and point us in certain directions. Keeping in step with the Spirit is simply persisting in the means that God has given us to hear his voice, which is his word, his community in the local church. It's prayer, 
It is walking in those things that he has given to us to do and to, to pray and ask God to help us to be content walking in those, in those columns, to be content being submissive to him and to his spirit. So there's the instruction, putting the fleshly desires to death as we keep in step with God's spirit. Now he illustrates this, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We talked about last week, just the, the, the behaviors, the fruit that, that's shown in verses 19 to 23. There are certain behaviors that express either the desires of the flesh um, lust, strife, impurity, all of the things that are listed in the, the first verses, and then the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, and patience. The flesh tends to move toward isolation, toward activities where it is me focusing on me and satisfying me, whatever it costs you, so be it. What, whatever is, affects somebody else, sorry about that, but I'm about me. That's, that's what the flesh is, is, is calling me toward. So here's this very practical illustration he gives of how this war plays out between desires of flesh and desires of spirit. He says in verse 26, there is this deceptive fleshly temptation toward conceit. When you think of conceit, you probably think of me. If I am conceited, if, if I'm dealing with a conceited person, it is somebody who, who really thinks they are special. It is me thinking, I am number one. I am better than you. I am smarter than you. I am whatever it is. You know, whatever we're competing at at that moment, if conceit has creeped in, it is me going, hmm, I showed you, right? And so he uses conceit here to, to sort of bring this in. This is the flesh wanting to applaud self, either either wanting to applaud self or if things aren't going well, it's somebody else's fault. I mean, there, there's the epitome of conceit is not only am I better, but if I'm not better, that's because something's wrong here. Somebody else is to blame for that. The flesh tries to boost me by playing down my weaknesses, my, my propensities to struggle with sin. The flesh, the flesh is what, what, what gives that answer in the, in the job interview, you know, what, what's, your, what's your greatest weakness? Oh, I work too hard, you know, I just... I, I am such a hard worker sometimes, right? Uh, you know, th th this, is, this is conceit. This is that, that I'm elevating myself. And, and he, he gives it just another twist on it down in verse 3 when he says, for if anyone thinks he's something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It is a, it, it is a, a thinking of oneself incorrectly. The, the, the Greek word for conceit, it comes from two words. The second part of the word means glory word we use commonly in, in, in the New Testament to speak of the worth of God. We give glory to God. We declare God's worth. We praise God. And so it's glory, but the, the prefix to this word is empty. It means empty or vain. And so what it's saying is there's, there's this longing for something that's not there. It's sucked the glory right out of it. It's empty glory. It, it, it's a desire for something big and fabulous and thinking it's more than it is because when you actually look at it, there's, there's nothing there. This conceit that he's talking about is, is demonstrated, he gives in verse 26, two different ways. He gives two examples of it, provoking one another and envying one another, sort of two opposite extremes. Provoking one another. The, the one side of conceit is, I think I'm right, and in fact, I'm pretty sure you're wrong, and so I am 
I am sort of craving a conflict at this moment for the very purpose of proving that you're wrong. I've, we, we've been down this path and we've had this conversation and I know I'm on the winning side of this one and I'm okay provoking you at this point because I want to make my point. Any of you married couples, any relation to this at all, right? I, she's, she's, she's going this path and, and I know it's wrong and I've, I'm going to show her and I am gunning for a conflict at this point. And that's, what he, that's what he has. And the, the, the provocation is, I am smarter, or I am better, or I am going to handle this better, or, or something about me is better in this, and I am willing to aggravate you and push your buttons in order to expose the conflict to show you that I'm right, and of course, sadly, you're wrong. That's the provoking that he, he speaks of there. Then he also gives the other extreme of envying one another. Instead of taking joy in the, in the success of someone else, in the blessing of someone else, in the gifts of someone else, there's this streak of bitter jealousy that says, yeah, well, the only reason they got that is because they had better circumstances. You know, somebody did that for them. I, I don't get the benefit of those kind of circumstances, right? And, and so there's this, this mean-spirited sort of celebration of misfortune and complaint when things don't go my way. That's because you, you got a break and I didn't, and I envy your circumstances. So he gives the, the conceit to show this is, this is the inward movement. This is the, the desire of the flesh is to think inwardly. It is to isolate. It's not to have a good conversation with you, but rather to provoke you or be envious of you. Neither one of those goes in a good place. But then he gives the opposite of that in this illustration. Chapter 6 starts, Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The opposite, the keeping in step with the Spirit is an attitude that starts with humility in the heart that says, I, I, I have received God's grace and God has been so kind and I understand that I am a sinner and, 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 and I need help. I need God's Spirit and I need other people to help me and to come alongside me. And it is out of that sense of reliance on the Spirit and, and desperate need and awareness of my own sin that I come to you in gentleness because I'm, I can't afford to be conceited because I've got nothing to be conceited about because I understand we are both sinners saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And, and, and so in humility, depending on God's spirit and knowing that I need you to help me, then we're keeping in, in step with God's spirit. We are serving. We are fulfilling, as he says here in verse 2, the law of Christ Bearing one another's burdens fulfills the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? It is what Jesus commanded his disciples when he said, new commandment I am giving you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. This, this, make this the distinctive of who you are, that your service of one another, your, your sacrifice for one another. The, the first attribute in the list that, you, that we looked at last week, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience. It's all outward otherly sort of direction. It's all, how do I do something for you? I, if love is strictly about myself, then I'm back to conceit. But the love that he's talking about, that's the fruit of the Spirit, is outward focused toward, toward serving others. And Jesus Christ said it there in John 13. This, this should be the mark. When people look at gatherings of people, 
They may gather for events, they may gather for organizations, they may gather for various causes. When they look at the gathering of the body of believers, the distinctive mark should be your love for one another. They should see this level of, of active sacrifice, of concern for one another that is different from every other association of people. And, and, and it's demonstrated in how we serve each other. And so verse 2 is just really the, the reality of the Christian life. We fulfill the law of Christ, bearing one another's burdens. The, the fact of verse 2 is that we all have burdens. We all have weighty things, pressures and hardships. We are not immune from trials. In fact, the New Testament would, would argue that as believers in Jesus Christ, there are particular trials we face simply because of our faith in Christ, simply for believing in Jesus Christ. We have other hardships that come into our life. And he says, you need to, to bear one another's burdens. And the expectation set in verse 2 is we shouldn't try to bear those alone. We weren't called to be lone rangers. This is like the, the appliance box that says on the outside that you need help to lift this. This is not a one-person job. This isn't that moment where maybe Jamie was busy and I couldn't get him and I'm down at the Lowe's parking lot and I am determined to get this thing in the back of the caravan and I am determined to do it without asking for help because that's what makes us manly, right, men? And yet, he's saying he, we... We must bear one another's burdens. That's what fulfills the, the, the law of Christ. It's that understanding that, that we weren't meant to lift this alone. We weren't meant to walk through the, the hardships and the struggles and the suffering. We weren't meant to do that on our own. We were meant to do that in reliance on God's spirit and in the community of God's people. So we are to bear those burdens. E even if that's as simple as being a good listener, and sitting alongside and praying with a brother or sister in Christ who's in need because there's just nothing we can physically do at that moment. We can just be present and listen and pray. We bear one another's burdens. Our concern should be to lovingly serve others. And that, and that should be especially apparent, he says in verse 1, when a brother or sister has messed up. When a brother or sister in Christ has gotten themselves caught in some fleshly desire has been ensnared by some kind of sin, and they are in the middle of it, and they have fallen into it, and they are feeling trapped by it. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Those moments of miserable failure are telling. Not just telling in what people do when, when they fall in those moments, but in what everybody else does around them. They're telling in how people respond when there's been that moment of failure, that moment of either falling into sin, or maybe it's been a sin that has affected other people. Maybe they've lashed out in anger at other people. And how, how those around them respond, is it anger? Is it criticism? Is it rejection? Is it harshness? In the body of Christ, where, where people are, are keeping in step with the Spirit, those moments... When a brother or sister in Christ, as it describes here, is caught in a transgression, those moments should be our finest hour. The, the, those should be the opportunities when, as believers in Jesus Christ, keeping in step with the Spirit, we persist in love and we pursue. 
We do what Jesus describes in Matthew 18 when he says that the, the, the shepherd is there and the one sheep goes astray and he leaves the 99 at the pen and he goes off to pursue that one because he wants to bring that one back. The, the whole point of the mission is what Paul says in, in 6.1 when he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. That's the aim is to bring back to full fellowship, to, to gently, humbly aware that this one who strayed, I could be that one in the next heartbeat. I could be just like that sheep and I could see a sparkly thing and go walking off in another direction while I'm out pursuing that. So I'm humbly, gently pursuing in love for the purpose of restoring, of, of, of praying for God to, to bring about repentance, to, to help me to be patient, to desire to, to help restore this is not a call to, to overlook sin, to shrug off sin, to pretend it doesn't matter. I, that's exactly why Paul uses that word restore. The word restore has the idea of fixing or mending that which has been broken or torn. It is an acknowledgement that the brother who has fallen into transgression, something has broken. Something, it, it, it's brought about something. There's been some harm. Our, our, our sin causes some kind of damage of some kind. And the call is for restoration, to come alongside to help that one back to, to repentance and toward healing. It, it's the picture of the prodigal son, right, that Jesus Christ gave? The, the, the father's longing, the heart longing is still for that son to turn from the foolishness and wickedness of the pigsty and come back, and when he does, what does he find? But open arms and a longing to restore, a longing to fix that which is in need of mending. What Paul gives the, the, the Galatians here and us is just this vivid, hands-on sort of picture of, this is what the, the desires of the flesh push you toward conceit. They push me toward, I'm, I'm good, I don't need you, I can handle this, I'm smart enough, I'm better than you, I don't need you because you've got no wisdom that you can give me because I've already got it all myself. That's conceit. The desire of the Spirit is that we would humbly see, I am in need of help. I can't lift this alone. And I need brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside and need to resist that, that, that urge to sort of play down my sinfulness, uh, but to be humble, to know that I am in need of help. All right, so the last part, this incentive, that's the illustration. Last part's the incentive. Down in verse 4, he says, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Interesting couple of verses here in light of what we've just read. At first glance, it almost sounds contradictory. We've just gotten done talking about sharing the load together, not being conceited, and all of a sudden now he talks about you need to examine yourself, you, you, you need to, to do this so that you will have something to boast in and you will be responsible for carrying your own load. So suddenly we've got this interesting picture. We've gone from community project. We do it together in humble dependence on the Spirit. So what is this testing of each one's work in order to boast alone? Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens. Verse 5 says, for each will have to bear his own load. We come across Bible passages that appear to be contradictory. One of the first rules we need to apply is what is the context? Let's keep this all together in context. These aren't just sort of isolated fragments. The context is war between the desires of the flesh and the spirit, and our response to that, our being in the midst of that, and, and what we've seen already is fleshly desires lead to contention and strife and provocation and 
blaming and, and all of that stuff, being jealous of what my neighbor has. What he's saying here is the, the community is the ground for our service, but we can also sometimes use the community as a source of blame. We can use the community to say, well, the reason that I'm struggling here is because of the way that person acted in the first place. Or the community isn't coming alongside me the way it should. And so we, we sort of blame shift at that point. And so he's, he's countering, not by saying that community doesn't matter, but he's saying in the end, yes, the community is the place, but the community doesn't, you, you don't get judged together as a community. You stand before God individually responsible. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. We live and serve in community, but in the end, we stand before God accountable as individuals. I am responsible for my actions. I can't finger point and, and blame shift onto somebody else. My heart attitude is my responsibility. So regardless of what you say to me or do to me, my response is not, a sinful fleshly response is not justified. And I can say, ah, well, you started it, so I just finished it. No, my heart attitude is still my responsibility. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of that is still the desires of the Spirit, even when I am being provoked. Even when you're coming at me, I am still responsible before God. And that's what he's doing here, is, is conceit, Conceit involves comparison and competition. God's spirit is saying, no, you need to rein in your desires and your motives. You need to, by God's grace, depending on God, realize that your reaction at this point is something that's going on in your heart. And so if you are responding in anger, that's because that's what's in your heart. That's what's coming forth. Jesus Christ said that that's what proceeds from the mouth, that, that which is already in the heart. And the standard that he's given us back in verse 2 is the law of Christ. And so when God calls us to love others as I love myself, I do that even when, when that seems contrary to the desires of my flesh, even when, when I feel provoked, even when I feel justified in responding sinfully. And, and, and what Paul is doing here in his kindness as he's finishing this letter and finishing this teaching on the war between the flesh and the desires of the spirit is he's ultimately pointing the Galatians forward. And he's saying it's not all about this moment. That is, that is our culture. That is our culture as it speaks to young people and all people that you, you need to get what you can in the moment and find satisfaction and pleasure in the moment. And what Paul is writing about here in, in verses 4 and 5 is the future standing before God and living in light of that now. So that's why verse 4 he says, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be future tense in himself alone, for each will have to bear his own load. Paul's saying there will be a day when we will stand before our great God, not to be judged for eternity on the basis of works. The whole message of Galatians has been we are justified by grace through faith. We rest in Christ, but we there is a stewardship of our lives, of our time and our talents and, and all that God has given us. And, and we will stand before God accountable for that. And so when he says in verse 5 that each one will have to bear his own load, different Greek word than the bearing of the burdens in verse 2. Verse 2 has the idea of this heavy weight that requires mutual help in lifting. The, the word in verse 5 for load was, was also used for goods or merchandise. 
I, I think it's fair to say it's sort of the picture of we will stand before God with the accumulated substance of our lives. There we are, there's, there's everything we bring, and we will stand there accountable for what we have done with the lives that he has blessed us with, with all that he has given us in terms of time and talents and, and energy. And in that moment, I will not be able to stand there like Adam in the garden when God appears and he says, it's her fault. It's, it's the woman you gave me. And Eve, well, it's the serpent that came in. The, your creation, right? And it, it, first sin, the response is blame shifting. The response here in Galatians 6.5 is each will ultimately give an account for himself. We, we will not be able to blame others for our circumstances, not be able to point fingers. Other people may have loved us and served us or may have treated you poorly, but we will be responsible for our own thoughts and actions. This, this is a theme that's throughout the New Testament, but really what, what Paul is doing is he wraps up this whole discussion of the flesh, desires of the flesh versus desires of the spirit is to say, listen, the flesh, flesh wants you to live for winning now. The flesh wants you to live in the moment for satisfaction and for pleasure and, and for, for getting what you want in, in, in the in-the-moment attitude and how I feel right now is what matters most. And Scripture says, no, ultimately how you live your life before your loving God whose spirit indwells you, you will stand before him. You will stand before him and be accountable for that. And that's, that's why then he's able to, to call us throughout this, to be putting to death the desires of the flesh, to be keeping in step with the spirit, to be obeying the law of Christ, which is to love and serve others and not being drawn into the, the conceit and the isolation of sin. Let's pray together. Father, we, we read passages like this, and it is, it is a mirror on our hearts. Uh, we can see, sadly, the, the bright reflection of those Scenes in which we are the ones who are determined to win at all costs. We are the ones who are allowing conceit to separate us off. We are the ones with the, the load or the trial and somehow are convinced that no one needs to know or that no one cares or that there's no reason to share it. Father, we can see in a passage like this, we can see ourselves and our hearts and our desires so well. And that's what makes us grateful for the working of your spirit. To not only expose those things, but to show us hope and a way forward. To show us that you have in your kindness given us your word to speak to us. You've given us the sweet privilege of crying out to you wherever we are. You've put us in a community of believers, given the opportunity to them to, to share, to help us carry that load. Lord, we, we see your goodness all over this passage and your grace because of the, the reality that you are at work in your people. You are changing the desires of our heart. You are causing us to to have an affection for things that apart from Christ we would not have had an affection for. You are causing us to see the, the sweet blessing of patience and kindness and gentleness, of 
of going on missions to restore, of acknowledging our own sin, of being humble and not conceited. Lord, you've made it clear that these are the things that you will foster in us by your grace and for which one day if we are, as we are held accountable for, we will know that it was of your grace and of your goodness that we are able to stand before you. Father, help us this week to be a people who bear one another's burdens, who live out the law of Christ to love one another. Catch us, we pray your spirit would, in those moments when we are being tempted to think more of ourselves than we ought, to think less of others than we should. Pray, Father, that if there's anyone here who's not trusting in Jesus Christ, that ultimately the the reality of standing before you is something that each person in this room will face. And it is only, only by resting in the death, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that there is hope and forgiveness. It is only by believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins that there is life, there is grace, and there is forgiveness. Father, thank you for continuing to challenge us from the book of Galatians. Help us to be keenly aware this week when the desires of the flesh rise up as they will. Help us to see them for what they are, to despise them, to react forcefully, to respond with your word, to not treat them lightly. Help us to ask for help when we need it from one another, to be a humble people before you, relying on your good spirit to work in us. In Jesus' name we pray.